Hi, this is Maya Maida, and you're listening to the Food Solidarity Podcast. Conversations with people around the world who are using the power of food to create local change. Today we have the pleasure of hearing from Nora Fitzgerald, founder of Amal Center in Marrakesh, Morocco. Amal Center is a vocational training program that uses culinary skills to empower women. Over 80% of women that participate in the program go on to own successful businesses and find employment in the local restaurant and hospitality industry. Amal is is one of the 10 organizations that was selected to receive the Food Solidarity Fund, an initiative by the social gastronomy movement to celebrate and reward those organizations that are working towards food security during this challenging year. Welcome to the show, Nora, and thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much, Maya. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. My first question for you, and I love starting out this way, is what is your relationship with food and what role does it play in your life aside from just eating and (laughs) enjoying? Well, I do believe that there's a special magic in food and um, that food more than anything has the power to sort of bring people together to nourish bodies but also nourish souls at the same time and uh, it's a powerful it's a powerful medium to be working in right uh, when I started a mall center, like there was something particular about the act of cooking for people and feeding people that that spoke to me uh, more than say I don't know making embroidery or sewing or you know any other activity. Um, so I also have four children. So I do a lot of cooking. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's. We have a restaurant at home and a restaurant at ML. Um, yeah, food is is ever present in my daily life. Amazing. And I did a little bit of research on you, and I know that you are American Moroccan, so um, born to American parents and. I'm also someone who is very much part of two cultures. I was born in the US, but my father is from India. And for me, food has always been a way that I've navigated my identity. Have you found anything similar to that? And has this influenced your work at all? Mm, That is very interesting. Um, Yeah, I feel like for my parents, moving to Morocco in the 70s, you know, like food remained a connection to their culture at a time when there weren't a lot of other means of connecting. Um, For us growing up, like we ate American, I guess, what you would call American food at home. And then, of course, Moroccan food anywhere else. Uh, when I started Amal Center, before I started, actually, I was, I just had a very small project with two women. And, uh, what I did was I taught them how to make, uh, American recipes, American desserts. So we did cheesecake, lemon bars, chocolate chip cookies, um, cupcakes. There were, and 
And I just, I wanted to bring a little bit of novelty because in Morocco, the biggest food influence besides local cuisine is French. So any, anything of pastry that you might eat in Morocco would sort of be like a, a very delicate, like tart with uh, creme anglaise or something like this. It's a, just a different type of baking altogether. So uh, we, I remember, so I would teach these, the two women, these recipes, and they would immediately make them like much better than I had made them. The, you know, the second time they made them was perfect because, you know, I'm, I'm like a casual cook. I cook for myself at home, but in this project, we needed things that were uh, pretty enough to sell. So we can have, you know, chocolate chip cookies that were all different sizes. So immediately the women um, took what I, uh, what I was able to teach them and just improved on it so much. I love that. And that sounds delicious. <laughs> I would have liked to partake in that. Um, um, why do you think it's so important to empower women, other women, not only through this kind of vocational uh, training education, but also just providing a space for growth and for, for community. Absolutely. I think that you described it really, really well as a space to be seen, a space for community, a space to feel safe and loved. And the women that we work with come from some of the poorest neighborhoods. And I think there's a thing where, you know, poor neighborhoods are all, all a lot of times invisible. And so the people who inhabit them become invisible uh, to people of affluence and power. And so when, when like our space is in the, the center of town. So it's almost like bringing an invisible population and honoring them with a space among, um, among you know, in a, in a fairly affluent part of, of Marrakesh. And, you know, space creates visibility in that way. And the people who come to ML come, I think, yeah, it's for the food, but it's also to honor these women, to honor them on the journey that they've chosen to walk. And, um, I just think that the whole thing is, is so transformative. A lot of what the women get is from each other, right? So we have like a staff, they have chefs, they have teachers, but I feel like the only person who can kind of do empowerment, so to speak, is somebody who's been in exactly the position that that person has been in. And so a lot of it is, is the peer group and the support that they give each other. And then a lot of our, our chefs and teachers, uh, some of them are graduates of the program. So they're also very close to the women in that sense. You know, I don't feel like, for example, someone like myself is in a position to come in and tell somebody, you know, how to be empowered who comes from a completely different set of circumstances you know it's not about like parachuting in some model of empowerment but it's just it's about what 
what really works in the in the community and is is kind of from the community if that makes sense it it makes perfect sense um and i, I actually really like the way that you phrased that because it's always like this everything exists already and many times within these spaces i i like that you call kind of in a way they're invisible, right? So it's that beauty and that empowerment and that strength exists already. It just isn't necessarily brought to the forefront of, you know, maybe mainstream society. It's maybe not seen by everyone um, or appreciated. And why is food such a, a good tool to kind of build those bridges within society? Well, in the case of Morocco, I feel like Moroccan women are already amazing at creating something out of nothing uh, as far as food goes. I mean, the ingredients that the majority of Moroccan women cook with are very simple. It's like a little flour, a little oil, but a lot of technique and a lot of um, know-how to make some amazing like type of bread or or uh cookie or you know or and everything's cooked from scratch i mean when you go back to what i guess we'd call underprivileged communities it's like they're they're cooking in the best way possible for our planet like they're cooking what's local because they can't afford you know imported food they're cooking things from scratch because the more processed a food is oftentimes that's an added expense. Um, for example, I know, I know women that like the difference between buying bread and making bread um, is huge to them uh, financially. So like they know if they buy bread, they won't make it to the end of the month. So there's just a lot of, a lot of wisdom there. And what I wanted to do with ML is just to, to value that, to, um, to build upon it. But they're already starting at a great place. Like <laughs> they're, they, they're already immersed in a world of, of food and cooking. And so I feel like it wasn't, it's again, it's something that is familiar to them. It's something that they can have ownership of and they can build on. Now, at the same time, when they're in the training program, a lot of the women are um, cooking and, but also uh, eating or tasting certain foods for the first time. And this is also for economic reasons. Um, so for example, somebody who's living on a few dollars a day would never have gone into a fancy bakery and ordered a fruit tart for $3, you know, like, uh, so it's an exposure to a whole new world of food as well. Or like they wouldn't know how to do a, they wouldn't have tasted a lamb shank, for example. And these are all things that they, that they're being exposed to and then cooking at the standard, at a professional restaurant standard. It's kind of amazing. And um, I'm kind of rambling because one, one idea is leading to another. But uh, 
another thing that that I didn't realize until the project started was that so for example like if you're a person with a certain amount of privilege like this means that you've you've eaten in a restaurant before like probably eaten in many restaurants and so you have some notion of how it works like you go in you sit down you read the menu you order something they come back they ask you what you want to drink i think we have already a certain body of knowledge around that whereas i just realized later for for a lot of the women in the program they've never eaten in a restaurant so we're preparing them to work in an industry that they themselves have not partaken in again you know it's all these invisible economic barriers that that i became aware of um for example we i had a couple of students who told me that um because they receive a scholarship while they're studying they said that they they took a little bit of their scholarship money and they went to a restaurant you know i think probably for the first time because they said we wanted to see all these things that we were learning we wanted to see if the table was set in the same way we wanted to see if the waiter or waitress would go through the same protocol that we learned and you know they you know they were just absorbing everything everything about the experience um so it's it's an interesting it's like food is also is is um an open door for them but also kind of an open door into a whole new world that they're that they discover like gastronomy is always this kind of word that you think of when you think of fine dining and this kind of like high end very traditional you know um type mm -hmm. of experience because it's not it's not only about the food it's about this entire experience that is in many ways reserved for those who have like this perspective of privilege so it's interesting that you raise that point actually and i think it's really beautiful that it is kind of like um it opens up a door to this this whole can you walk me through a little bit of the journey of the training program so from when women get involved with amal to to the point where they leave and then move on mm -hmm. sure um so uh women apply for the program and actually i mean this is i'm talking about other than corona times like i'm talking pre-corona normal times we would get applications and we have um we have about 30 spots for every six month cycle and we could easily get over 100 applicants so it's a matter of going through and finding a the, the women who um, meet the sort of socioeconomic criteria so we focus a lot on women who have not been given many many chances in life they haven't necessarily gone to school or they've gone to a little bit of school they might be in charge of a family of children for whatever reason 
whether it's a widow or a single mother or divorced women and um, local associations that offer other, sh other services to women. For example, we work with a shelter uh, for single mothers and we work with an, an association for orphans. And um, so as we're looking for this socioeconomic need, of course, we also want to look for women who have an internal spark, who have a motivation, who are coming with their own motivation to, to change their lives, to invest in themselves, to invest time and effort in themselves, because we want to invest in them to the degree that they're willing to invest in themselves, in a sense. And I think having clear expectations from the beginning is, is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And we, we're, pretty, um, we're pretty structured, I guess. I don't want to say strict, but, you know, the expectations are clear that they have to come at a certain time. They have to adhere to the training. Uh, if they're not going to come, they need to call us. And these are sort of, these are just good, good professional practices for wherever they end up. Um, you know, clear communication, taking personal responsibility. And so after they're accepted to the program, uh, the women start and it's, it's a six month program. And so what they will do is they will spend two weeks in one post for example two weeks in salads or two weeks in moroccan cuisine or two weeks in international cuisine and so they do two weeks they're usually like two students with one chef they're learning um in a very real way like what they're making is what's being sold to the customers and so it's kind of real from day one and at the end of two weeks, we do a little assessment. We make sure that they've gotten what they need to be getting. And we try not to make it too school-like. Like we've gone through a lot of different iterations in how we do it because all of this is something we've just created from nothing. The training program, <laughs> the two-week rotations, the assessment, like these, these are just our attempts to be as effective as possible in a program like we're not taking this from any other organization like this literally a whole idea that we've we've built up from scratch and so at one point we were kind of doing like that they had to memorize the recipes and then they had to make sure they knew them perfectly and i was just like well we've we've succeeded in recreating school which has already been a challenge for a lot of these women. And that's not what we want to do here. We want there to be learning and not sort of stress around learning or not an artificial like um, testing mechanism or something like they either know it or they don't know it. And if they don't know it, they go back and they, they learn it again. Um, so usually the women, uh, we have two centers. We have the restaurant, we have the catering center. So for example, in the restaurant, they'll come in in the morning, they'll start to prepare lunch because we, we do a lunch service. And at noon, we start the lunch service. 
and we'll have anywhere from 100 to 300 customers for lunch and so everybody will be working together the students and the chefs and whoever our, our admin staff everybody at that point is equally involved in serving the customers um, then after lunch service is over our students will have their lunch and then they will they will have a class usually a one-hour class which is an enrichment class it's going to be something like a french class because we've noticed that you know french is also one of these huge golden keys that opens up so many doors um, they also do some english and this is all sort of at a communicative level you know english for the restaurant industry French for the restaurant industry. And they do life coaching, they do math kind of numeracy. Um, we were also open to having volunteers. So there'll be some like cool or interesting classes like, you know, we've had a few classes like art therapy or yoga or something. I just feel like anything that is offered to them is enriching and 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 widens their horizons and their experience of the world. So at the end of six months, they, we then set them up with a, an internship in another uh, restaurant or bed and breakfast or establishment, and they do a two-week internship. Now, a lot of times, the people that they're doing the internship for will like their work so much that they will this will lead to employment and if not um, then we we make several attempts to connect them with a the job like in the beginning we sort of we promise them that we will find them at least two jobs because sometimes for whatever reason the first job doesn't work out and then we we make an attempt to offer another job and usually by that point, like sometimes everybody in a cohort gets a job. Um, sometimes they even leave the, the program early. You know, if, if she gets a, a job offer in the fifth month of the program, we're not going to say, no, you have to finish all six months because, you know, it's a golden opportunity. We're not going to lose that. And so that's kind of how it all goes. <laughs> the long, a lot of explanation because trying to sum up what you know happens in six months and <laughs> yeah, this is really that's the core of what of what happens. Beautiful and yeah, I mean that was actually a very concise <laughs> um, summary. So thank you. Um, and actually just for curiosity's sake um so the the women not only work in the kitchen as chefs like during and train in the kitchen for the you know actual cooking part of things they also work as servers so everybody kind of has every role in like the restaurant kind of thing yeah yeah so one of their 15 day rotations is service. And um, for a lot of the women, I have to say, sometimes it's the first time that they're interacting with somebody who's not Moroccan. 
because we have a lot of tourists and a lot of um, expats or non-Moroccans who live in Morocco. And there's kind of a lot to unpack there because Morocco was uh, colonized by the French and there's always, there's, um, there's, there's, there can be a sense of intimidation um, in when, uh, when, you know, for some of our students, I'm not, I don't want to say like every single one, but it, it's a bit intimidating to speak to these, whatever, white people or, and, and I think, you know, that's just part of the learning. And um, it's interesting because when we're doing the French class, you know, after, you know, after a few months, they, they've learned some French. And I remember one, one girl saying to me, you know, she said, when I, when I used to walk in Marrakesh, if, if a French person stopped and asked me a question, I'd be so embarrassed that I didn't speak French. And I just had, you know, I was like, I said to her, but like, you shouldn't be embarrassed in your own country for not speaking the language of a foreigner. Like, they should be embarrassed that, they're, that there's even that expectation. Um, so it, it's kind of like, it's a whole, it's a whole thing, uh, you know, unpacking that, but also, also, you know, um, getting over that because a lot of the people that they will work with in the food industry will be foreigners and just coming to, to coming to see that, um, how should I phrase this? Uh, yeah, sorry. It's just, <laughs> if I, if I, if I open this door, I'm just gonna like go off into like a whole different thing and we won't finish our, our podcast. But anyway, so, so yeah, waiting tables is, is one thing that they do. And then when they've finished their 15 day rotations, all of them, I think there's seven of them. Then we've kind of see like, okay, well this, this student really liked baking or she really was good as a waitress because um, and I think my, you've, you've worked in restaurants, like there's a very different character to somebody who uh, works in the front of the house, as opposed to somebody who works in the back of the house. Like for the waitress, it's, you know, you're, you have good people skills, you smile, you have to be nice. And I think to work, for example, we used to have a chef who was just tell us like, the kitchen is the war zone. You know, my knives are my weapon. I'm fighting fire. I'm, you know, he just, he painted it in this thing of like, yeah, you can't be nice when you're, you know, you're cooking and people are depending on you. It, there's a level of, of rigor um, in the back and there's shouting and there's, you know, it's, it's a whole other, world back there that you may, you may not be aware of when you go to eat it in a restaurant. And so we, to some extent, we try to like fit them according to their um, sensibility, you know, where they work the best. 
Yeah, and and man, it must teach them all. I mean, it's definitely a lesson in like adaptability, I would say, when you're exploring the various roles in a restaurant. I mean, <laughs> I also worked at a place where I was very much like, I was, of course, front of the house, but it was very small. So I had to be back of the house sometimes, you know, and it is like <laughs> it's like two different worlds separated by and sometimes just a, a curtain <laughs> um yeah. but your training program was brought to a halt like so many other things because of COVID-19 um what were some ways that you had to rethink your practices and your strategy to continue the work um but in a very different way. So um, everything that I've described up until now is kind of in the past <laughs> because in March, um, Morocco ordered a, a massive lockdown and we closed our training centers. And then ever since then, we've been in this, in, in this process that you described of rethinking and re-strategizing uh, we haven't had we haven't had training programs resume since then. When we when we had to close the training program, I thought to myself, well, ML is a place that was created to serve the vulnerable in our community, and we've been operating in one way up until now, and now that way has been taken away from us. So let us rethink how we can serve the community and what's needed right now. And what we saw was needed in the immediate, I mean, I'm talking like within days of the lockdown going into effect, was um, that people did not have food. People in our community literally did not have food. We have a lot of people who live day to day, who live in the informal sector, who just scrape to get by as it is in the best of times. And these people were not prepared at all. They did not have any savings. <clears throat> at that point, there wasn't any government assistance or plan with how these people would be helped. And just knowing that caused me so much panic that I wasn't able to just sit back and, and write it out. I think within a week of the lockdown, uh, we'd started organizing food basket deliveries and we started with a little bit of savings that we had and then uh, sent out a couple of appeals and people donated from all over the world. Like we raised over $100,000 for the food basket campaign. Um, so each basket cost $50 and contained about, we estimated like a family of four for about two weeks. Um, so we just, and this became our full-time thing. Like we have a staff of 30 people. Most of them were at home. I think there were about five of us who were working on this. Um, and we would just make a list of families and of a hundred people, we'd order a hundred baskets worth of food, make up the baskets, do the delivery, 
start over again. It was just like hundred by hundred by hundred by hundred. And this continued um, kind of up until July, actually. Uh, and we had, by, by that point, I think we'd, we'd given away about 2,100 of these baskets. Um, so that was, that was massive. It was so, was so bittersweet too, to be part of that and to see how grateful people were for this basket of food. And I was just like, this shouldn't be the difference between somebody eating and somebody being hungry, like this $50 basket of food. Um, it, it, it was so, so difficult for me. Like I was happy that, that we were able to do that, but I also was, um, felt like we can't reach everybody. Um, anyway, it's, it's still, it's still in progress. Like we, it, I mean, it's still, it's still an issue. In fact, I think now people are almost feeling it more than at the beginning of the pandemic because anybody who's, who had a little bit of something put away has by now eaten it and, or spent it. Um, we're just, we're noticing how devastating the economic repercussions have been. Marrakesh is a very tourism-based economy and tourism has completely disappeared since Morocco closed its borders. So, we, I mean, we, we probably have a couple hundred thousand people out of work in Marrakesh alone. And um, yeah, so it, we, we also as ML lost, we, we were pretty heavily tourism based as well which now in retrospect, like I wish, I wish we had had more diverse sources of revenue because a lot of our source of revenue was tied to tourism. We do a cooking class for tourists. Uh, we, the restaurant is frequented by a lot of tourists and that's all disappeared. For us, like our revenue is probably at about 10% of what it was pre-pandemic. Um, so what can I say? I mean, <laughs> we, at the same time, I feel like the same creativity that it took and the, the sacrifice and the, 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 the vision that it took to start Amal in the beginning is what's needed right now. Um, so we have, we have a lot of different things that were sort of the, like um, avenues that were nurturing in order to be able to um, like we have a motto for the year which is to survive and serve so a like we hope to survive we hope to be able to pay our staff of about 30 people and keep our doors open but it's not surviving just for the sake of surviving it's surviving and also have having a purpose and that purpose is continuing to serve. I think that, you know, also here in Rio, um, tourism has completely stopped and it's, it's remarkable 
how actually at the beginning of the year, it was like so good. Like tourism was really, everything was really good and, and booming here in the city. And uh, then it just stopped completely overnight. My husband also, what's needed now more than ever is that creativity and the innovation and the desire to serve um, that so has had influenced Amo and um, your innovative response, I guess, to the pandemic is one of the reasons why you were selected for the uh, food solidarity to receive the food solidarity fund from STM. And right now, uh, what does that concept food solidarity mean to you? I, first of all, I really love the concept, just the word food solidarity. It just, it resonates so deeply with me. And that's why when I discovered there was like a whole network of food solidarity and I was just like, and social food. And I was just like, what? There's other people doing this. That's great. And then like reading about other people's projects. I'm like, yes, this is so good. Um, feed people, like just feed people. That's it's so simple. And so I think for us, this is what we're, we're, we're hoping to do this year. And partly with, so with the grant from the Food Solidarity Fund, what we've done is, so we, it's taken some time to kind of reassess now that, that Morocco's opening back up and, you know, like we were doing the food baskets, but we wanted to stop and see kind of where the dust would fall now. And so very recently uh, we were alerted to the fact that in one of the, the public hospitals in Marrakesh, that is, um, that is one of the main COVID hospitals and kind of, you know, uh, underfunded and whatnot, that a lot of the staff members, the, the day staff members don't have, they're not included in the hospital, um, food, cafeteria thing. And so they, they, they can't eat in the hospital. They're forced to sometimes go out of the hospital. And it's sort of both unsafe. And I feel that like we should have their back, you know, if they're willing to put themselves at risk every day the least we can do is provide a meal. Like, I just feel like that's so basic. So we've contacted them and we've expressed that we would like to offer this um, for free. Uh, you know, they, they don't have a budget, so we're not, we're not looking for that, but we're looking to start doing this with them and deliver, we'll be delivering sandwiches and we hope to deliver couscous on Friday because that's the traditional dish of uh, on that's the Friday Moroccan dish and so of course the big question is you know how do you fund this how do you fund this in a sustainable way so we'll be starting with the the funds from the food solidarity fund and then we're hoping to attract private donations we're going to be looking at corporate donations and possibly some other type of grant, you know, who knows where, I feel like 
we just need to start and get it underway and then figure out how to pay for it. Like that, <laughs> I feel like that pesky little detail of the, where's the money going to come from. But I'm super excited about this as just like our reason for existing. Like we should have a reason for existing that, that serves an immediate purpose. And this is what it, how we've come up with. It, it sounds great. And um, yes, that's a pesky little thing, but I'm glad we could, we could help you um, in, in starting that out. My last question for you, and I have an imagination exercise. Basically, in the, imagine that we're living in the year 2030, and somehow we've achieved all of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So there's zero hunger, zero waste, zero um, poverty. To, in your mind, in this utopian world, what does the food system look like? And how did a mall center and your work uh, contribute to that future? Hmm. I love this exercise. Um, I, I got goosebumps just trying to imagine this world <laughs> where we've, we've hit all of the SDGs. Um, for me, for me, like, the food world is directly connected to like social justice as well so kind of like things that i've touched upon in 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 this interview um is that sort of we're we are valuing the people who work in the food industry as much as we care about the food itself like um that they are they are honored and they're they're given their worth and they're protected. So that that's kind of a big part, a big piece for me. Um, that we eat in a way that <laughs> that our, our planet does not hate us for. And just just kind of reasonable, that we are just reasonable about food. Like food does not have to be always sort of more and more exotic and sort of more pushing the envelope and um, flying food halfway across the world to eat it and all these, these things that I feel that, like, is it not enough, like what we have right in front of us? Is food not a miracle in itself? The fact that there is food and the fact that we, we cook it in so many different ways, it's sort of like a miracle of existence. Um, for me, it's enough in and of itself. And so if ML can have contributed to um, uplifting the people who work in food and to creating a way that, that eats that works for everybody, then I that's, that would be great. Nora, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate um, all of the work that you do, and I, I loved hearing all of your insights, so thank you. Thank you, Maya, and thank you for uh, welcoming me into this wor world and network of food solidarity that I'm just so, so excited about and so inspired by. Thank you. 
Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in to the Food Solidarity Podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the Food Solidarity Fund, the Social Gastronomy Movement, or a mall center, please visit www.socialgastronomy.org.